hey, you made it past the pro wrestling, around the basketball, didn't get distracted by the Rick and Morty memes, and here you are, inside of my caged mind, an MMA-crazed place on Micah Frankel. Visit my website. It's cageminds.com. The YouTube is Cage Minds MMA Show. We're available everywhere you get your social media. It's Cage Minds Combat Sports News on Facebook. Cage Minds underscore CSN for Combat Sports News. Over on Instagram and the original, the one we've had the longest, over on Twitter, at Cage Minds MMA. My own is at Frankel Micah. That's my own Twitter. Yeah, let's get into MMA and... I can see clearly now, as I've told you all, the picture of the middleweight title scenario is now clear. Robert Whitaker, the Reaper, Bobby Knuckles, you can call him what you want, but call him a man heading for a rematch with Israel Adesanya. And what part was I most impressed about of his win over Kelvin Gastelum? It was the takedowns. Kelvin Gastelum, a very good wrestler. So good that he won the Ultimate Fighter on his wrestling skills. Yes, at 185 pounds. Remember, he beat Uriah Hall, brained down that whole Nas campaign, crashing to the ground. And Robert Whittaker hits four takedowns on Kelvin Gastelum, not to mention just lining him up with strikes. Lining him up with strikes. Slipping, ripping getting out of the way, and making Gastelum pay. No more lunging in overhands, just enough upper kicks, uh, just enough uppercuts, bringing in those low kicks, and then that devastating high kick that stunned Gastelum twice early. The takedowns came late. The high kicks were early. It was the best Robert Whitaker we've ever seen. And three top ten wins later, it is assured that he is ready to face Israel Adesanya once again. Looks like in the fall, Australia could be opening, maybe New Zealand, maybe the UFC goes global and not just to Fight Island. I mean, it's everybody's favorite vacation spot, Fight Island, and I'm sure the UFC is going to be there. But if you're going to do an Adesanya Whitaker too, business dictates you can sell out a stadium. We're not talking about an arena, but a stadium. With the popularity of those two fighters in Australia, in New Zealand, either one, take your pick. I feel that's where the UFC is going to go. And there's more than enough talent. We're talking about guys like Jake Matthews, Jimmy Crew, who's going to be in action at UFC 261 this weekend. We'll talk a little bit about that later. You got guys like Brad Riddell, Alexander Volkanovsky, Taya Tuivasa, just between New Zealand. In Australia, you put together quite the card. Throw a little Japan, a little China in there. Quite the card without causing too much international chaos as we know the world will just be reopening. But it's quite tempting. Marvin Vittori was in action on the microphone. Was in action on the Twitter. Didn't fight. Obviously, we know he's coming off of the win over Kevin Holland, Holland going the wrong way in the rankings. Vittori, still only three. Somehow, Paulo Costa in between Whitaker and Vittori. Whoever makes the rankings really loving Costa, even though he ain't fought in a minute. I 
feel like this is easy. This is easy now. Adesanya Whitaker, you make that fight. Marvin Vittori sitting around like, man, I want a title fight. Derek Brunson, man, I want a title fight. Man, you two should fight to see who's next to get a title fight. After that, you got the injured guys, and I don't know how we do this because Darren Till, Jerry Cantonier, Paulo Costa, there are three injured guys, and whichever two are healthy as soonest should probably fight each other. That also then throws back in the winner of Uriah Hall versus Chris Weidman is right in the mix to kind of fight the odd man out of those three. So I like where the middleweight division is going in that trajectory. We'll have more coming back to the UFC rankings in just a moment, but we're going to hit a couple other places, like to just a stupid place. I understand there's bravado, there is intensity, there is a psychological edge gained from the stare down. But it's also quite laid out by the commissions that the two competitors are not supposed to engage in physical contact. We all know good and well, emotions get carried away, these dudes lose their heads, can't be professionals all of a sudden, and people will push and shove. And this past weekend in Las Vegas... Jeremy Stevens is now the villain, the criminal, of one of the craziest acts we've ever seen at a weigh-in, or what it's led to, actually. It's not the act, but it's the effect. Because there's always a cause and an effect. Cause Jeremy Stevens is so intense and let himself just get a little bit over the edge at the weigh-ins. The effect was, if you haven't seen the video, Stevens for his co-main event or scheduled co-main event fight with Dakar Close, gets up there, pushes Close. Close had his hands behind his back, kind of pushing his lower back forward, so kind of puffing out your chest. And from the push, moments after weigh-ins, still before the process of rehydration has really fully gotten going, Stevens pushes Close Close is then taken to a medical facility, checked out by doctors. And then apparently from that shove, in his dehydrated state, cannot overemphasize the dehydrated state. Suffers a cervical sprain and a concussion. That's why weight cutting is so dangerous. It's because when you deplete your brain of all that fluid, the brain is that much more vulnerable. Speaking slow, hoping you can understand me. Not sure if you're going to disagree with me. The UFC, obviously, these are just contracted employees. It's not really a fine that they can levy towards Jeremy Stevens. He did not get paid for his efforts. And thankfully, some reason... It apparently went through negotiations. After negotiations, Dakar Close was given his show money and I believe his Venom money for wearing the apparel throughout the fight week. Unfortunately, not wearing it in the octagon. 
But I guess this just takes it another step further to where Sean Shelby, Dana White, the UFC staff, the Bellator staff, the One staff, the any staff that's doing face-offs after weigh-ins, you have to be that much more prevalent about not letting these situations happen. And I understand it's a moment of intensity, a moment of bravado, a moment to read into your opponent or strike fear. Some guys don't get stuff from the, the face-off. Some guys get a lot from it. And what we got from this was a horrendous situation that shouldn't have happened, shouldn't have transpired. And hopefully, I understand, Jeremy Stevens wants to be an intense guy. Get that dagger in the eye, killer instinct, look to his opponents and convey the wild, insane man that they are about to fight. That is all good, dude, but you are still a professional athlete, a father, a man, a worker in an environment where you at work at that point. And I believe that all those need to be reminded of you in that moment to also have restraint. You get to fight the next day. You have your 15, your 25 minutes to settle it then. But there is no look that should lead to hooks on stage at the weigh-ins. And especially when we're talking about somebody that's been around the game that long, somebody that should know better, I'm hoping it's just a lesson for everyone else to learn from. And I'm hoping that Dakar Close is able to rehydrate and not have ill-lasting effects from, I don't know what a cervical sprain feels like. I'm sure that concussion cannot feel well. So let's all wish the best for Dakar Close and hope idiocracy doesn't outweigh intensity because intensity is one thing, but idiocracy is another, a nearly finable offense. We'll see if the commission weighs in on it for the actions. And I don't understand on the UFC side why somebody that was injured obviously there in the midst of preparing his job how there was even negotiations about how much money we're giving you you suffered injury due to another fighter another guy that we contradicts actions of course we'll take care of you to me that would only seem like the right thing to do but the right thing to do ain't always the easiest thing to do when we're talking about mma before I get too crazy, just too, too, too crazy about everything that transpired and is transpiring with the UFC, let's take a step back. Because we're talking about really things that were in context on Friday and Saturday with UFC, Fight Night, Whitaker versus Gastelum. Heck, there was also Bellator, Bellator 257, and the Bellator Light Heavyweight Grand Prix Two more quarterfinals in the books. So we have three quarterfinalists that are known. And I kind of feel like the light heavyweight Grand Prix is just totally outshining and stealing the spotlight, overshadowing the featherweight Grand Prix. We know that Patricio Pitbull, Friday, AJ McKee, that fight is amazing. That fight is great. That fight is must-see. The power puncher with the guillotine against a sniper with this endless bag of tricks of submissions, not to mention a high-level wrestling background. That one should be just the talk of the town. 16 men to start out the featherweight Grand Prix was not a bad idea from Bellator. But unfortunately, COVID, unfortunately some fights and events getting pushed back and kind of moved around. 
there is no momentum for the featherweight Grand Prix. And I think that Showtime, Bellator together really needs to, over the next few events, keep reminding people about $1 million, the Grand Prix title and the featherweight title being on the line, the magnitude of how big that fight is, not just when it's going to happen, but I think you need to keep the buzz going to really let people know about that fight where Ryan Bader out-wrestling Leona Machida gave us our first Grand Prix semifinalist last week. The jab and wrestling would come into heavy play again this past week as Vadim Nemkov, the jab and just the more volume of strikes, defeats Phil Davis. The wrestling of Corey Anderson overwhelms Devlataz Yagshamir Muradov, the ACB champion. I know the name is a mouthful. Anderson had trouble getting the takedown in the first round, got in the second round, finishes the fight in the third. Wicked ground and pound from the back. Wrestling and jabs have been pivotal. And here we all are already with both semifinals set up. And there's so much momentum for the light heavyweight Grand Prix. Now we just got Anthony Johnson versus Yoel Romero to go to see who fights Vadim Nemkov, who gets a title opportunity, who gets the champion in the semifinals. You got the two best wrestlers, Anderson, Bader, both great double legs, both great jabs. I think a better overhand and a better shuttle punch from Bader, but Anderson with the better gas tank, the better volume, the better kicks, to be honest. Intriguing matchup there. The light heavyweight Grand Prix has excitement. Do you hear it in my voice? Do you hear it in my entendre? There's excitement there with the light heavyweight Grand Prix, and it is overshadowing what has happened at 145 pounds. And it really shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. Because Patricio Pitbull and Mercenary McKee, that fight is incredible. But it's taken so long to get through 16 guys. And I know most of that is not Bellator's fault due to coronavirus. But you just don't have that same weight of importance. You just don't feel like it's in bold print in the same way the light heavyweight Grand Prix is. Before we move on, it's also worth noting that Julius Ingliscus beat Gregory Millard to officially become the Bellator Light Heavyweight Grand Prix alternate. 10-1, unbeaten in Bellator. That one seemed very logical to me, especially for a guy that is in the rankings. Good to see that move made. I said the word, though. I said, like, what were probably, I said rankings. And I've talked about the Bellator rankings, and I'm also happy to see that Bellator has rankings. Because to me, rankings make sense of things. You're able to understand fully, definitively, why a bout is a number one contender's bout, rather than just what the propaganda was put together. Oh, the win streaks make sense. Okay, they've both been in the promotion. Stuff like that. Catching up to the UFC, Bellator did rankings. And right out the gate, they make me scratch my head. Back at Bellator 256, we were about to see Julia Budd and Kat Zingano on the same card. Both number one and number two ranked in the women's featherweight division against unranked fighters. Dana Silva, unranked, 
takes Julia Budd all the way to a split decision at Bellator 257. Now, I understand you can't judge a book by a cover or by a number, but getting to the top 10 is prestigious, and if you're 8 or 9, your great reward for 8 or 9 is watching an unranked fighter get the opportunity to jump the pack. That's really what happened here. Diana Silva, 9 and 5 coming in, had an opportunity. If she shocked the world and beat Julia Budd, that she would jump the whole pack. And that, that is why I don't understand the number one fighter against an unranked competitor. It's why I also just can't understand what Bellator is doing with some of these rankings and where they wanted to head with them in the start and how people are moving up and down the rankings. Ryan Bader, Timothy Johnson, Chet Congo, that all makes sense. Moldovsky, Fortune. Terrell Fortune moves up to in the heavyweight rankings after his win against a short-notice opponent in Jack May at Bellator 258. Um... Oh, 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 or I mean at Bellator 256, excuse me, how, how does, how, how does Terrell Fortune move up when he didn't fight a guy in the rankings, Lynn Vassell and Fedor Emelianenko both move down, I, I don't know how that works, you're looking at the 170 pound division, and when Jason Jackson won, it pushed the whole division down a lot more than people expected. And it was also quite interesting to see that by being named title challenger, Yaroslav Amoslav jumped over Michael Venom Page. That was a move that a lot of people thought was correct, but I don't understand how it actually happens. And then that, that was just the first update. Of the rankings that didn't make sense. Where we're going to get all the way to the Bellator rankings. And I'm sorry if I make your head hurt. Here at 125 pounds. Vito Ortega coming off of a win this past weekend. Moves up one in the rankings. After beating Desiree Giannis. And unfortunately to let everybody know. Desiree Giannis is not on this list. So Ortega moves over Jackson because she picked up a, a win. Okay, we'll look at the Bellator women's featherweight division real quick. We know that Katz and Gano and Julia Budd were both in action. I told you guys about that. They both got victories. That's all stable. Somehow Leah McCourt has moved above Amanda Bell, who fell down one, and Jesse Melly moves up one. None of them have fought. Talia Noguera fought. She makes her way into the rankings. That's good to see. But I'm not sure about some of those moves. Sabah Hamasi lost against Paul Daly. We'll all recognize that. And Hamasi had went into the week ranked as 8. He drops down to 9. Paul Daly, as you'd have it, was not ranked. And you guys may be like, well, okay, Paul Daly, where'd he go? He took Mahasi's 8. But unfortunately, what doesn't make sense is they didn't fight at welterweight. They fought at 175. 
Welterweight is 170. And Paul Daly has said he will not be competing at welterweight again. His body cannot make 170, so he'll be fighting at 175. So he's in actuality not a welterweight, but I guess close enough here to get in the rankings. We look at the lightweight division, and this one really gets a bit confusing because Dan Moret beat Goichi Yamauchi, albeit by split decision, but it was the decision of record. And as the rankings, you know, they're going to completely agree and absorb these results. Moret is at number eight, and Goichi still holding the number three spot strong, coming off the loss. Miles Jury has moved up one. Sydney Outlaw has moved down one. Neither one has fought. Not sure how the lightweight division is moving. We look at the featherweight division. J.J. Wilson, he beat Pedro Carvalho. Carvalho drops three spots. He was ranked four. He drops all the way to seven. Wilson jumps up from seven to four. But can't forget that J.J. Wilson missed weight. Missed weight, but is still being allowed to move up in the rankings that one hard to understand. Mrs. Waite still getting validated. Mads Burrell goes from 10 to 8 with his win over Sal Rogers. That one makes sense. But how are we treating the guys that miss weight or don't fight in the weight class? Obviously for Bellator, as we're seeing with Wilson and Daly, we're ranking the division in a loose definition, giving that a couple pounds in either direction. Now, as I told you at one point, that Fortune had jumped above Vassell and Emelianenko. We now see in the latest Bellator heavyweight rankings that it goes Bader, Johnson, Congo, Moldovsky, Vassell, Fortune, Mary, Mitrione, Ayala, Davion Franklin, and Jake Hager. Not going to hate here. Big fan of Jake Hager AEW. Not going to hate. Had the opportunity to be around and interview several times. Davion Franklin, great dude. My question, though, is what happened to Fedor Emelianenko? What happened to Sergey Karatanov? Did their contracts expire with Bellator? Did they just fall out of contention? There needed to be a bit more explanation as to why these guys went from ranked to unranked. Emelianenko was all the way at five. Now, nowhere to be seen. Not understanding the Bellator rankings. If you're going to tell me this is how it works out because they're no longer with the promotion, that's one thing. But to just throw up an image on social media without an explanation leads to my ire, leads to my wrath, and needs an explanation given. Because without explanation, it just seems to be madness. And it's still a bit madness looking at the light heavyweight division. Uh, Yagshimiri Muradov, obviously out of the Grand Prix. We're waiting to see Anthony Johnson, Yoel Romero, the winner, will fight Muldov, uh, Nemkov, fights Vadim Nemkov, and will get a light heavyweight title shot. But neither one is ranked. 
You go one is Bader, two is Anderson, three is Davis, four is Inglisius, five is Machida, six is Neal, Fortune is seven, Edwards eight, Manahoof at nine, and Carl Albertson making his debut in the rankings at ten. We have rankings in the lightweight division and the women's featherweight division, even the welterweight division, moving to a point without guys fighting. I don't understand why you couldn't just pack Romero and Johnson in there at the middle of the pack at four and five. Because right now you're looking at it, asking yourself, why is Inglisius ranked number four? but not in the light heavyweight Grand Prix. I love that Bellator has rankings, but I wish that the rankings made more sense. And if you're Bellator and you were doing the rankings, you had to look at this and say, we're going to be different than the UFC. Because that's what Bellator has had to try to do. We're going to be different. And we know that there's been a lot of concern about the way that the UFC rankings are used. Are they truly independent? Are they truly acknowledged? If you're using them, are you acknowledge them and you really using them into the matchmaking formula? It would make sense to do so, but it doesn't feel like that's what's happening with the UFC. So you expected Bellator to try to do better. But it does not appear to be that way when you've got guys moving that haven't fought. When you've got guys that are scheduled to fight in prominent fights that will lead to championship opportunities who aren't ranked. It begs me to bring this up. It begs me to beg you to make some sense of this just so that it works. Why wouldn't you want it to work? This weekend, we've got some great things in the works. As there's LFA 105, you got the debut of the PFL's 2021 season. Anthony Pettis there in the PFL UFC with three title fights. Start off with the LFA real quick because there's going to be the crowning of a third women's straw weight champion. That one's going to be outstanding. You have Ukraine versus Colombia. That's going to be a sick matchup. Two incredible finishers there. Got interviews up with a couple participants from the LFA 105 card. So please check out the YouTube channel. And view those. Go over to the website. Gotta thank Shauna Ormsby and Mark Morton for taking the time to talk to me. So yeah, check those interviews out, guys. And I think that's all the way around to the UFC. Oh yeah, PFL. If you didn't get to see it, PFL already happened this week as I'm recording. And the prelim, the fight that I could not wait for. One championship decided to make that the first fight of the card. Nikki Holtzkin was even more destructive and devastating than I could have imagined. Three knockdowns in five minutes and knocking out John William Parr, the Australian Muay Thai legend, with the lead leg high kick. It appears that now, after his loss to Reagan Ursel in the one Super Series kickboxing, that Nikki Holtzkin is fully focused on one Super Series Muay Thai and I want to see that guy in a title fight. I want to see him in a title fight. Love his body shot and love seeing what he's doing there in one championship. Also got to bring up the hooks and the devastating action that was brought to you 
by John Lineker. Hands a stone, still throwing him, still winging the hooks. Clipped one with a low blow. Doesn't really matter before landing the big devastating punches upstairs. Lineker has a stone. He made the right call afterwards, calling out Bibiano Fernandes. It's not everyone's cup of tea. But one championship, I still find it to be a lot of fun and love that TNT is giving us these cards, giving us an hour of top-of-the-mill action. I know there's been some crazy disqualifications. Unfortunately, it happens in MMA, and the really bad luck of one championship is that it happened twice in two events. But if you've ever given a restaurant a third try, give one championship a third try if you didn't love the first two weeks. Because, gosh, it's still just a different brand of martial arts. And to think that they were, and I don't know if it's audacious enough, to think that they were really willing to make a fight to get Eddie Alvarez back in the mix that quick. And, yeah, I said it, that quick, back in the mix. We're going to see Eddie Alvarez next week officially against O.K. Ray Yoon, who was able to beat Murat Gurdavov by... Decision, Marat, gassed out, Yoon, great striking. We will see what that one holds in store as Yoon will now come in with the number five ranking to take on Alvarez, who's there in the top five. And possibly we could see the next opponent for Christian Lee come out of that fight. And the last thing to talk about today is UFC 261. Three title fights. Couldn't be more pumped. You got the outstanding light heavyweight matchup between Anthony Smith and Jimmy Crute there. The rematch between Chris Weidman, Uriah Hall. Then you really get into the salivating stuff. There's a chance that the power punching, the overwhelming offense of Jessica Andrade, the raw power could be too much for Valentina Shevchenko. It feels plausible. It feels realistic, but it doesn't feel likely the champion has had is just so diverse. She's so technical, she's so fluent, and she's had an answer for everything that everyone has brought to her except for really Amanda Nunez. And Nunez is that much bigger also. This is Shevchenko's weight class. I think that the champion once again retains. I don't want to say it's just going to be a champion's night, but that's what it feels like. Zhang Wei Li went through a war and has been tested now against Yanni and Jacek. And it's really going to be a clipped and then scramble for the submission situation if you see Nami Yunus coming up with the victory. I believe it would be by submission, but it's going to be a precision strike because she does have that precision ability. But we even saw against Andraj that... There's not this distance that separates Nami Yunus from the other strikers. We did see it go down to a split decision, and both are more than incredible fighters. It means it's that close, but in a close fight, and where we've seen Wei Li more battle-tested go through wars, I feel like you have to weigh on the side of the champion, where if there's anybody that could come through with this upset, it is Nami Yunus. She is the one that has done it before. She was able to knock out Ioana when nobody thought it was possible. 
But I believe that, again, it comes from the precision. It's going to have to be that precision striking and a real good shot to then get in on a scramble and get a submission to get that victory. On the other side, it's been a knockout. Yes, that was getting dropped on her head, once getting submitted and twice losing by decision. So I like this fight going to the long haul if we're talking about it, and I'm still favoring the champion, Zhang Wei Li. The main event in the same aspect, you have to favor the champion. This one, the rematch. Yes, Jorge Masvidal has had more time to prepare. And obviously should come in as, even though he has more fights, he should come in with less wear and tear because Usman has been more active in the short term. Rumblings of retirement have been popping up for Usman. Whether those are realistic or not, it is another storyline in a subcontext playing out in the background where Masvidal, you would think that because of his stance, of I will be getting this rematch and hadn't taken another fight since July, since the first fight that he spent all this time in the laboratory working on the takedown defense, working on the uppercuts, the flying knees, the tools that will be needed to be able to hurt Usman. We saw Gilbert Burns do that with an uppercut and kind of take his foot off the gas. Maybe Masvidal just comes out harder, says F the takedown defense, and comes out looking for that knockdown, knowing that Burns was able to hurt Usman early. But now, Usman, we've seen him be hurt. We've seen him fight through and recover. We've seen him switch stances. We've seen him still keep fundamentals with his striking, going that jab, and then following up with devastating kicks. His wrestling is a notch above, and that's always an ace in the hole for the Nigerian nightmare that he can dictate where this fight takes place. If Masvidal hurts Usman on the feet and doesn't knock him out, he could end up on his back and lose the opportunity that he created by hurting Usman. I could see a lot of money coming in on Masvidal. Street Jesus has pulled off upsets, has been on this incredible run, but it was not enough on short notice to get past Usman, and I don't know if it'll be enough on a full camp. But can you take advantage of, as we said, Masvidal, since that fight, has just been preparing for this rematch, where in February, just two months ago, we saw Usman defend against Burns in a fight that only lasted 34 seconds into the third round, so that's 11 minutes of action of competition, but it was a fight where he was hurt, and he had to recover, and he had to overcome. Is this too much too soon? Is this trying to keep the fire lit? Or is this just simply saying, I'm already in shape. Let me knock out some of these opportunities and some of these challenges for a second time while I have that chance. And to add another little piece of context to the storyline... This week, apparently, Dana White has already given heavy inclinations to the media that Colby Covington will be the next person to challenge for the UFC welterweight title. So once we get done with Masvidal Covington, it's either another, or once we get done with Masvidal Usman, it's another rematch possibly for Usman, the Covington fight, because he beat Covington before beating Masvidal. Or 
we get the grudge match between former best friends that people have been awaiting, kind of salivating over. That's Covington versus Masvidal. But why? I mean, like, why? Colby Covington hasn't fought since September. It's been seven months since we've seen Covington. He beat Tyron Woodley. It was a fifth-round TKO from a rib injury. And since then, I think most people expected that we would see Masvidal Covington. We didn't. Maybe we'd see Covington versus Edwards. No, no, no. Covington has sat back, bide his, bide his time, and off of the gravity and the weight of beating Tyrone Woodley, has forged that into an opportunity for the welterweight title. It doesn't make sense because you almost feel like looking at the rankings. Told you we're going to get back to the UFC rankings. Ha <laughs> ha. That Covington comes in at number one. His last win is against number 10, who actually got stopped by number six. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Vicente Luque, number six, stopped Tyrone Woodley in under four minutes, submitting him with a barbara with a barbara choke, anaconda choke, at UFC two sixty. It's now amidst of a four fight skid for Covington, and I don't understand the way to Covington's argument. Yeah, I was only the third loss. Who cares that Luque finished him faster? He had already lost three. Well, dude, he had already lost two before he met you. Yeah, but I fought him for five rounds. I don't see the huge weight in the argument. But what I do see is a belief from the UFC, whether it be Dana White, the matchmakers, the owners, that Kobe Covington is still a marketable entity who has drawing power. And that is the only reason I think that he circumvents the system. Circumventing the system, what do you mean, Micah? Well, here we are, UFC 261. And fight week, they're talking about who is the automatic title challenger, the next guy at 170 to get the winner of Usman Masvidal. Why is that so outlandish? Because the UFC is giving Nate Diaz the opportunity to jump the line at UFC 262. You have Nate Diaz fighting Leon Edwards. And let's just say right away that you didn't make this Covington announcement. Let's go into a world where you didn't do that. Usman beats Masvidal. Diaz beats Edwards in my imaginary world. That is a great way to make Usman versus Diaz. Or, other way, on his illustrious big win streak that started started after a loss to Cameron Usman, Leon Edwards beats Nate Diaz. And then he fights for the world title. Both of those seem to be laid out perfectly and make sense to me. But apparently that's not what the UFC feels. The UFC is giving Colby Covington that opportunity. And I guess the winner of Edwards Diaz is sidelined. Because you would feel that you are the number one contender. Whichever way that plays out. That leaves the Gilbert Burns looking to get back in action. Hopefully him and number five ranked Stephen Wonderboy Thompson can get together and make that fight happen. That would leave six versus seven, putting Luke versus Kiesa because we know eight versus nine, Maya versus Maddie has been made. And Tyron Woodley, who we've brought up a couple times, four fight skid, still with a fight left on his UFC contract, ranked number 10 in the division. Oh, actually, excuse me, I did not mean Neil Magny versus Damian Maya. That was a mistake. It is 
Bilal Muhammad versus Damian Maya. So that's 13 versus 8. So maybe number 9, Neil Magny, hanging out out there. He's fighting actually 11, Jeff Neal. Tyrone Woodley would be looking to fight Lee Jing Lian, who's number 12. But 12 versus 14 with Lee Jing Ling versus Robbie or against Sean Brady would be better. Robbie Lawler at 15 seems to be MIA. That all would leave that I could make a bunch of top 15 matchups without Tyrone Woodley because Tyrone Woodley anyway seems to be more concerned with a certain boxer who's not a boxer who likes to fight guys that is smaller than him. So Tyrone Woodley is more either looking for celebrity, MMA, or boxing fights. So if I confuse you, let me go back through all this. Once we get out of the mush that is the title picture, it feels like Gilbert Burns, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, foregone conclusion. That one should happen. Vicente Luque versus Michael Chiesa. That should happen. Already booked to happen is Damian Maya. That's 8 versus 13 below Muhammad. And already booked to happen is... Number nine, Neil Magny against number 11, Jeff Neal. So if you're 15, Robbie Lawler, what is he doing? 14, Sean Brady. 12, Lee Jingliang. And you also have that number 10, Tyrone Woodley, who we're not sure how active he wants to be in the UFC as he has his sights set on celebrity boxing. I think I confused myself the first time. Hopefully that second time I was able to put it out there more plainfully, more simply, more just easier understandingly. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you guys have had fun. I thank you for tuning in. This has been Micah Frankel's Cage Mind. Again, visit the website, cageminds.com. We're on Facebook, Cage Minds Combat Sports News. On Instagram, at Cage Minds underscore CSN. On Twitter, it's at Cage Minds MMA. That is the original. You can also follow my own personal Twitter. That's at Frankel Micah. This podcast is going to be available everywhere you get podcasts. And I also have a YouTube channel, Cage Minds MMA Show. Enjoy some fights this weekend.